You're listening to Garbage Into Gold, a Sixers podcast hosted by Brandon Apter and Jesse Larch. Part of Philadelphia Sports Nation, visit online at phlsportsnation.com. Garbage into gold. What's going on? It is time for another episode of Garbage Into Gold. It has been a couple of weeks. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Brandon Apter, joined, as usual, by my co-host, Jesse Larch. Jesse, welcome back. It's, It's been a while. It's been a while. You're looking nice and trim, like you got a haircut from somebody or you shaved. I have not. Um, tends the hat, keeping all this under wraps. Oh yeah, but well, I wear a hat usually anyway. But still, same idea. Yeah, I shaved this afternoon. Considered a goatee, not a good look. So I, I have not gotten a haircut in months, but decided to shave and look like a regular human being today. Yeah, I've done the opposite. So. You know, I clean up my neck once in a while. Um, you know, wearing those N95 masks really makes the beard extra itchy. So I f- did find when you clean up the beard, you know, make the sides nice and straight, take off any of that extra neck stuff, that yeah. it does really, really help with the itchiness. And so let that be a little grooming tip for you young kids out there. <laughs> well, again, thanks, uh, everybody, for joining us on Periscope and Twitter. Uh, And thanks, everybody, for tuning in, whether you are listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Anchor.fm, Google Podcasts, any of those. We appreciate you listening. Lots to talk about today. Uh, So we, on the docket, we have, um, let's see here. Let me pull up my thing. I'm very prepared. Um, So... Uh, we'll start off with the status of the NBA because I saw something this morning about this. Uh, I think it was actually CNBC. It was very weird to see that uh, a couple of league agents and league executives told some folks at um, CNBC that the regular season is more or less looking more like it's going to be canceled then it will be resumed and that the playoffs are still in the picture. But, you know, at this point, as of this recording, we're April 30th. It seems pretty unlikely, even for somebody that's not a league executive or somebody with sources that that makes us believe that the NBA regular season will resume. It just I, I, I don't foresee it happening. How about you? I think there'll be some type of tournament, but. Like, yeah, I don't see any norm resuming. It'd have to be like, I don't know. I feel like I've heard the least rumors of how the league's going to operate with the NBA versus like the other leagues, like the NHL or um, MLS. Mm -hmm. You know, like the other leagues, you've at least heard the ideas. NBA has just been like mum on the whole thing. And it kind of makes you like, you know, the one thing I'd say they've done different is they've at least set like a hard line date for getting back to work. Yeah. We just don't know what work they want to do yet. Yeah. I think the only league that I've seen that plans on starting back up, like 
the collegiate summer league baseball teams are hoping to start July 1st with fans in the stadium. And NASCAR, I think, is starting back up racing in May and June, but only at two tracks. So they're doing like three different races at, at, at two tracks. So if you're not a NASCAR fan, you're not a NASCAR fan, but it's some form of competition, I guess. Yeah, you got to get what you, uh, what you can during these days. It's just, uh, yeah, I, I, no regular season. I, I just, if there's a playoffs, it's still going to be a while away. And you have to wonder at this point if it would be better to just wipe it all out and give everybody the opportunity to heal and plan for a new league year, whenever that might be. Because at this point, again, some states are starting to reopen ahead of when they might sh- like they should reopen and everything. So we're, it's hard to even say that in October that fans are going to be allowed back in arenas for the regular season. So at this point, I almost, as much as I want to see the playoffs, I feel like it would be best for everyone to just shut it down, uh, allow players to go back into facilities slowly uh, as, as things kind of calm down a little bit, uh, but plan for for next year and try to get all of the details and all the intricacies that you need to uh, for post-pandemic or playing with no fans in place, because otherwise it's just going to be unorganized chaos, really. Yeah, you mentioned NASCAR. I was really, like, not excited about that. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, like, I don't watch it with fans. <laughs> like, that's also a sport where it's like, I don't think fans really impact the game mm-hmm. or the event. Like, for the people there it does, but for the racers, like, it doesn't hold any bearing on a game. Whereas like, you know, in an NBA game being at the foul line with time running out and the crowd booing in your face, like that's a whole different thing. NASCAR, you don't really get that element. Um, You know, so I'm still curious how other sports are going to do it without fans. Um, You know, I think baseball is going to be a really weird one, especially. Yeah. What do you think of that? Um, What is it? Three, three divisions. Like ten plus teams in each division, East, Central, and West, and them all playing in their home stadiums just with no fans. Baseball's like I just can't wrap my head around any of the ideas for baseball. Um I don't know. It's like none of it is still it's all surreal. Like you can't I just can't picture sports without fans. Um, or sports where like I can't go to the event and watch. Yeah. You know, can't like invest the same way. Like it's like, am I even going to care about who the champion is if there's no fans? Or it's like, it's just not the same. Like, you talk about playoff baseball versus baseball, like October, mm-hmm. you know, being like almost a, its own brand of baseball. And in that sense, like, yeah, I don't want to watch baseball where no one cares what happens or no one's there to care what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and same with hockey, like, playoff hockey's the best thing in the world, if you ask me. And like, yeah, there's going to probably be some form of playoff hockey, but like it's not going to be playoff hockey, right? The way it's been, especially the last few years, you've seen cities like Nashville, Carolina, um, you know, Philly always will, a lot of the ones always will, but like you just see the impact of fans on a game. Like the Predators a few years ago were one of the best teams in hockey at home because of their fans. Um, so it creates a lot of like asterisks, I'd almost say. Not in like a cheating sense, just in like, you know, where are we getting the purest form of the game? Right. Yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree with you there. It's just, it would certainly be hard to imagine any sort of playoffs without fans. Again, the lack of electricity, and, and I know for us being a Sixers podcast, you know, Joel Embiid has spoken on many occasions as how he feeds off the energy of of the fans. So it would certainly be interesting to see if the level of play suffers because of there not being any fans, or if we get the same level of play with no fans in the arenas. Well, with the Sixers, especially because they're such a bad road team and what two losses all year at home, I think was uh, the latest home record they had. Yeah. Like only the bucks were better. I'm not sure the Bucks were better at that point. I think the Sixers might have had the best home record in basketball. And it's just like that's because of the home crowd. And there's, I don't think there's really any denying that. I think that's why the team played better at home because a guy like Embiid, a guy like Simmons, they got fired up with the crowd getting fired up. You know, on the road, the crowd's not there to cheer them on. They don't give the same level of effort. So whether they're playing in Philly or not, if there's no one there to cheer, you know, do we get the same lackadaisical Sixers that we get on the road all season long? Yeah. And personally, I think that's what's going to happen if there's no crowd. I don't um, miss those Sixers. I don't. Yeah, I think that's the one that we're going to get when everything starts back up, unfortunately. <laughs> Tremendous. Well, uh, you, you mentioned Ben Simmons also being one of those guys that feeds off of the electricity of the crowd and the energy and the atmosphere at the Wells Fargo Center. In the last couple of weeks, Ben Simmons spoke with uh, Jackie McMullen of ESPN on, on a number of topics. Um, it, it looks like if there were to be a resumption of the NBA season at any point, whether it's a couple of regular season games or exhibition games to get warmed up for the playoffs, uh, that he would be good to go. His back injury is more or less healed. So the the big comment that goes back to a lot of the things that we've talked about already uh, with regard to Brett Brown, we've heard uh, Jimmy Butler and J.J. Redick talk about that, and we'll actually visit that just short in, in a little bit. Um, but we know how the city feels about Brett Brown. And Ben Simmons made a comment about how you know, he still needs to grow with regard to making himself accountable. He feels that he needs somebody to help hold him accountable. So he hasn't really grown in that aspect of the game. And again, this is his third full season uh, in the NBA post-injury. And I think after reading his exact comment about him thinking that he needs somebody to hold him accountable, the fact that nobody is holding him accountable is is sort of baffling and sure you can blame the front office for not holding him accountable for doing whatever. But I mean, I think this points to coaching. If Brett Brown isn't holding Ben Simmons accountable. And I believe there was a point in this article where Brett Brown said or threatened Ben to, that he was going to bench him if he didn't start shooting, but he didn't end up doing that. Instead, he grew the point guard skills and everything, but the accountability issue really stood out to me. And, for me, I don't know how you feel about this. I I think the Sixers, if there's no season, if they resume the season, whatever. I think Brett Brown has been a great coach here, but I think it's time to move on, especially after seeing those comments. Yeah, and like, there's no secret I'm a – I'm not going to say Ben apologist. There's nothing to apologize for. 
Um, I think Ben Simmons is a great player. I think he's effective as is without his jump shot being developed yet. I'm not saying he couldn't be more effective with one, but like he's still a top 25 player in the NBA without a jump shot. Mm-hmm. Um, with that said, it's a little troubling, and I never had an issue with Ben's work ethic or his uh, leadership style or, you know, like I know people get bothered by how quiet he is, and that doesn't really bother me. Yeah, me either. Um I think that's just him. I think, you know, you see him on the court. You see when he makes a big play, he's emotionally invested. Like, I don't think that's a concern. It does bother me that he says he thinks he needs someone to hold him accountable. Mm -hmm. And, like, if you know you need someone to hold you accountable, then it it just doesn't, like, make sense in my brain why he can't hold himself accountable when he knows he needs accountability. Yeah. Um, Or why doesn't he put someone in place to hold him accountable, like a personal coach or something like that. So there's like multiple avenues for him to go around to solve that problem himself. With that said, I think your points about Brett there are very valid. And we all know Brett is a player's coach. Um, You know, he doesn't like to ruffle feathers. He's not a yeller. We only have like one known instance of Brett getting fired up in the locker room. And that was down the stretch last season. Um, And that's the time when like TJ McConnell and Jimmy Butler were saying like, oh, he was going off. It was great. But it's like even that little bit of fire, you saw the players, how they react. I think they came back and kicked ass in the second half of that game. Mm-hmm. And you would have thought maybe Brett would adopt that approach a little more frequently than he did at the time. It seems like he's just gone back to being Brett, run the same offense. You know, if the shots don't fall, he doesn't get mad. Right. And like, I mean, that's kind of like you're saying, you know, it's kind of becoming a really toxic environment, especially for a growing team that's supposed to be contending for a title. So I I don't know what coach you could go get. I don't know what kind of coach would be the kind to hold the team accountable. I, first one that comes to mind is a Stan Van Gundy, mm-hmm. who that gives me pause. Um, I'm not totally against a Stan Van Gundy. Definitely against Jeff. Not totally against Stan, but yeah. I need to think about it a lot. Um, so I don't think there's any like up and coming assistants that would step in and boss around Joel Embiid and Ben Simmons. Right. Yeah. Like you're talking, you'd have to get an established veteran coach who has some credentials behind him to actually move the needle with these younger guys. And, you know, Brett should have been able to do it with how much time he spent nurturing them. He should be able to get through to them on that level. Um, but it's clear he hasn't. Yeah. And I mean, unless they come back from the stretch and everything's different which I highly doubt, like, I think I'm in the same boat as you are. Yeah, and Joel Embiid also commented in in this article on ESPN, said Ben Simmons has a really good learning curve that has no ceiling. Uh, He said that he's had conversations with Ben about shooting, and he believes that Ben can help him a lot. Joel believes, or Joel feels that he's helped him a lot with his game, a lot of people keep saying, oh, you have to stop spending time on the three-point line, but I do it because Ben is such a good driver going to the basket that I've got to help open that up for him. I I would like if he would do the same for me to start shooting threes, but I also know how uncomfortable he is with it. So, I mean, I feel like, for me, it's seeing him is believing. Until I see him take shots i'm not going to believe that he's going to be confident enough to do so there's going to have to be some sort of 
you know, come to Jesus at one point or another and, and, and see what the options are. But I mean, to this point, I don't disagree that he's a top 25 NBA player, but I mean, they're not going to win a championship with Ben Simmons the way he is. At least I don't think they are. No, I think enough teams have proven the ability to game plan around Ben's skill set right now. Yeah. And, uh, not to mention the personnel doesn't really fit Ben's skill set either. Yeah. Uh, certainly. So the next thing that I have uh, is another thing regarding Brett Brown. Um, J.J. Redick was on the Sixers Beat podcast with uh, Rich Hoffman, who was a guest on our show a couple episodes ago, uh, and Derek Bodner of The Athletic. And if you remember, if you're listening and you remember, J.J. Redick has Jimmy Butler on his podcast. And Jimmy Butler commented about how during film sessions, nobody talked, people just watched, you could hear the film clicking, and J.J. didn't really say anything. He smiled, but he didn't say anything to refute anything. So when he was asked about, uh, when J.J. Redick was asked about Brett Brown, uh, J.J. described Brett as a player's coach, that he was very thorough and detailed and that there was a purpose to everything including team meetings film sessions the daily schedule uh, everything is well thought out and meticulous and he said quote i don't think brett is the problem if there is a problem so you know obviously on your own podcast and when you're on other podcasts you might reveal different things and and certainly it's no you know, everybody knows that JJ is a big fan of Brett Brown, really liked him. And that's why, like one of the reasons that he came back here on another one year deal. So I just found it to be interesting that he didn't say anything to refute when Jimmy was talking about it, because it sounds like from JJ's point of view, the team meetings and the film sessions and the practices and everything were well thought out and meticulous. So I mean, what do you believe? Do you believe the Jimmy Butler side of it when everything was quiet, or do you believe JJ and JJ was just trying to be polite based on the, you know, I guess the atmosphere and environment he was in? Um, I think on Jimmy or on JJ's podcast, it may have been a case of like Jimmy Butler is an alpha personality, and maybe JJ didn't want to like upset him in the middle of a podcast he was doing for him, like respecting your guest. Um, I mean, I would like to think JJ is telling the truth on the Sixers beat podcast, but like the way Jimmy Butler outlined things coincided with so many other reports and like just experiences, like things I've seen with my own eyes Mm -hmm. that what he said makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, again, I, I believe like maybe for JJ, those film sessions may have been more productive because it was a, su- a system very conducive to using J.J. Redick. Yeah, good point. Whereas part of Jimmy Butler's problem with the film sessions is he didn't understand his role. Yeah. And the film sessions didn't help him understand the role, whereas J.J. Redick's role was very clear. So from J.J.'s point of view, he was seeing exactly what he's supposed to be doing, where Jimmy Butler's watching it saying, well, I'm not a catch-and-shoot guy. I'm not the ball handler. We don't run any drive plays like where do I fit in? And I think that may have been more what happened. Um, you know, the truth's always somewhere in the middle. I don't think, I still don't think Brett did a very good job assimilating Jimmy Butler into the offense last year. Mm-hmm. You know, the became kind of fourth quarter save us, which Jimmy Butler did a lot. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think it also goes into the comparison that you made in terms of Brett Brown and Chip Kelly. And I brought it up in a couple of ep- other episodes is that instead of adjusting the system to the players, you try to adjust the players to the system. And I feel like we saw some kinks in, in that strategy happening this year when you have Al Horford and Tobias Harris instead of J.J. Redick, Covington, and, and Dario. Yeah, for sure. And it's like, you know, it's just not built for it. Even Tobias Harris, who's a good three-point shooter, is not a catch-and-shoot three-point shooter. Um, and that's where this team's like falling into trouble is, you know, running the same offense to death with guys you don't fit it. And like we said, that's part of what I think Butler was saying, where, you know, no matter what he brought to the table, it was, okay, run off of a screen, catch the ball and shoot it. Mm-hmm. And we would often see Butler run that action, get the ball and then hold it and do what he wanted. Yeah. Because he was being defiant in a sense. Um, I don't think he was doing it to piss off Brett. I think it's just what he was comfortable doing yeah. and a way to kind of, you know, protect himself and, you know, especially him going into free agency that off season, like he had to do something to keep his value high enough where he could get a contract like he got. Um, so he goes into business for himself a little bit there at the same time. Like you can't say that he didn't make the Sixers a better team with the way he played. Yeah. Um, you know, it would have been nice to get the same exact roster back for this season. Mm-hmm. Um, didn't happen obviously and really it sounds like from what butler said that that was never going to be the chance no matter what happened it's just overall frustrating i i think i don't think brett brown's lost the room but i think his culture needs to be shaken up whether he does it or it's done for him yeah uh i feel like every gm that's been here during brett's tenure whether it be hinky colangelo brett himself or elton brand they've they've all given their support for brett brown josh harris for the most part has given uh his support for brett brown especially after um you know last year's playoffs we we learned that brett's job was safe and everything like that Brett Brown's job is one of those things where I feel like unless there's a finals appearance, he's going to go like it's time for a change. But Elton Brand, a guy who's only been at the helm for a season or two, uh, we get the question from my friend Tony from the Get the Tables podcast is, does Elton Brand need to go? We saw these rumors about him potentially being a uh, target for the Knicks general manager position, but they just renewed their GM's contract for another year. So do you think one more year for Elton and then Josh Harris gets fed up with how things are going if it's underachieving and starts wiping everybody out? Because we see Mark Eversley, who was a high-ranking executive, now going with the Bulls. So maybe this is the first cog in the front office slowly changing, hopefully. Um, I don't think Josh Harris has the balls to do it. You know, like, he wouldn't have fired Brian Colangelo until the the burner Twitter thing happened. You know, he never would have fired Sam Hinkie until Adam Silver stepped in or Hinkie actually resigned. He didn't even fire Sam Hinkie. Yeah. He hasn't fired Brett Brown. The only coach he fired, you know, it's like he has not shown he's that kind of guy. Um, I don't think he wants the confrontation. I think he likes to just collect his paycheck from his new toy mm-hmm. and then go back to whatever he does. And, I mean, he says he's committed to building a champion. I think that's all PR. We've shown how much he does things with the mind of public interest. As far as, like, 
you know, um, even most recently with not paying arena workers for Sixers and Bulls games. And then Twitter freaked out. Then, oh, no, no, we're going to pay them. It's like yeah. every, everything he does is with the thought of PR. It's not with the, the thought of, like, logic or reason. So maybe maybe Sixers Twitter could pressure him into firing Bretter Elton Brown the way they pressured him into firing or pressured him into paying his workers. Um, I think it's a different type of thing. I don't think they could really convince him that far. So it would probably take something catastrophic for Josh Harris to pull the yeah. trigger. I think they at least both get one more year. Yeah, uh, I'd have to agree with you at least on Elton, but I'm not sure. I mean, I guess it'll it'll depend on what happens this season. If they resume and it's the playoffs and they get knocked out of the first or the second round, I think they'd move on from Brett anyway. If there's no resumption at all, I'm not sure uh, Josh Harris would, would pull the trigger on Brett, even though I think it's – after all the comments that we've seen, from, whether it's from Butler or, or from Ben Simmons or even Joel Embiid kind of echoing the fact that he and Ben have talked about uh, him shooting more and it's not echoed by the coach, I think it's, it's time. But uh, before we get into our 2014 NBA redraft, uh, one of the – yeah, we we have not had sports for quite some time, but luckily over the past uh, couple of weeks, we've been treated to a phenomenal documentary on ESPN called The Last Dance, um, detailing Michael Jordan's final year and all of really all of the years leading up to uh, his final year with the with the Bulls. And uh, we're four episodes in, and I do want to say I hope eventually down the line we get a crazy process documentary like this, given they'll probably have to win a championship in order for that to happen. But, um, you know, for me personally, I, I was not an NBA fan when Michael Jordan was playing, you know, in the 90s. You know, I was young. I was, I was mostly into pro wrestling, and I had not gotten into – uh, the NBA until about 2000, 2001, when the Sixers were on their finals run with Allen Iverson. So for me, it's, it's been very, very cool to be able to see Michael Jordan uh, play because I was not watching the NBA at that time and seeing how good of a player that he is or, you know, one of the greatest of all times. You see the LeBron against MJ debate that will go on and on for ages and ages, but it's just, it's, it's been neat to see the dynamic of that team. Um, and it has certainly been eye opening to see, uh, Dennis Rodman's personality, uh, dive into that and, and his whole vacation into, into Las Vegas where he didn't come back for three or four days. I mean, it's been pretty wild so far, but I've really enjoyed it. Uh, what are your thoughts on the the first four episodes that we've seen so far? Yeah, I, um, this past week's installments, I've really, really enjoyed. Um, you know, the first two were obviously good, but they weren't like I wasn't as enamored with them as like Twitter was. Um, but this third and fourth episodes, where I thought were like as far as storytelling and like behind the scenes looks. I thought it was just awesome. Um, there's actually a great 30 for 30 in the latest series of 30 for 30s about Dennis Rodman that you should watch if you liked that episode the other night. Um, that's just goes even deeper into him. Um, really, like Dennis Rodman's kind of been labeled as like not 
psycho is the total wrong word like just a guy that not not even like an individual but just he's definitely different people think maybe something's wrong with him like you know why does he do the things he does especially in the 90s when you're wearing a wedding dress and things like that people definitely think something's wrong with you mm-hmm. um but if you actually like dive into who dennis rodman is there's a lot of really really interesting things about him and like just how he is as a person and it really kind of explains you know what's going through his head and things like that and i thought it was fascinating um and makes you kind of you know it it really normalizes dennis rodman who's kind of known as an enigma and it makes Um, you appreciate phil jackson as a coach for for letting him be himself well this is the first time i've actually seen phil jackson as the Zen master. Like I've always heard them call him the Zen master. And I never like, I never knew about him applying native American philosophy and, you know, Eastern, Eastern exercises and like workouts and just like meditation. And like the guy, like I could not imagine wanting to play for anyone else after playing for him, the way he handled it. Yeah. Um, I really can't imagine why the bulls GM, whose name's escaping me at the moment, Jerry Krause, Yes, why Jerry Krause would ever make such a definitive stance that Phil Jackson needs to go after this season mm-hmm. with the way he was tying everything together for the Bulls. You know, such an alpha personality like Michael, um, a guy like Scottie Pippen who obviously had his frustrations and like kind of mentions that he was not tied to the Bulls by any means. You know, Dennis Rodman being Dennis Rodman and the way Dennis needed to operate. And like, like, I love the part when Phil's talking about having Dennis in his lot in his office and they both recant the story, which makes it even better that like clearly it struck a chord with both of them. Um, and again, another thing with Dennis Rodman is like, he values those things very, very strongly. Um, I've heard other interviews with him where he just talks about his personal relationships and like the things he remembers about people mm-hmm. and things like that go a long way with Dennis Rodman. So like when they sit down and he sees Dennis Rodman's Native American necklace and he goes, is that the whatever tribe? And yeah. Dennis is like taken back like, yeah, like how'd you know that? And then, you know, Phil goes on a whole tangent with him about like, you know what you would be called in that tribe? And like just like, it was such like a moment you would, like you could never see a Brett Brown or a Tom Thibodeau pulling nope. something like that out. Um, and it definitely gave me a new appreciation for Phil Jackson who – you know, I have like half jokingly at times said like, well, the guy had two of the greatest teams of all time to coach, like how hard could it have been? Yeah. Um, and this, these episodes really kind of demonstrated that it, as good as they were on the court, there was definitely things to manage out off the court. You know, there was such a interesting group of personalities and I'm sure the Lakers, if they, I'm sure eventually they'll do a Lakers one too. That's the same thing with Kobe being the way Kobe was as a competitor, Shaq being Shaq, you know, all the extra pieces that they had in L.A. Like there had to be the same thing where somehow Phil finds a way to make everyone coexist. Um, That was definitely my favorite thing was watching Phil Jackson kind of weave his web and like just show his mastery of being a coach. Yeah. Yeah, I I agree with you there, too. It, It certainly shed a light on phil jackson that i had not seen before and 
I'm, I'm not going to repeat everything you said word for word, but yeah, uh, like looking at the Lakers and the Bulls teams that he had, it just looked like, well, you'll do a little bit of work and they'll be able to do it themselves. But there was clearly a lot more to it, a lot more depth to it. And um, sh- sheds a, a light on all of the different personalities in that team. And, and a lot of that hasn't necessarily, like some of those things have changed, but there are a lot of teams around the NBA right now that have personalities that don't mesh so it's it's nice to to be able to have that inside look i also want to add the bad boy pistons are fucking awesome (laughs) i I love the bad boy. what did you think about them walking off the court without uh congratulating the bulls after they swept them yeah that's classless definitely yeah um but like I don't know any team that gets a name like Bad Boy Pistons, the Grit and Grind Grizzlies. Yeah, like I just love any of those teams. And you, you think of like the Bad Boy Pistons, and then think back to um, the Ben Rashid Wallace, Chauncey Billups, Rip yeah. Hamilton Pistons. Gosh, I like hated those were... Pistons. Yeah, it's like I don't even know if they had a nickname, but they were kind of the same cloth. Yeah. Like they embodied that same spirit. I thought, or at least just from being such a strong defensive team. Yeah, the bad boy Pistons probably wouldn't uh, last too long in this day and age because I feel like everybody on their team would foul out by the end of the first quarter. Oh, for sure. And I saw someone saying, like, you know, like, do you think LeBron could could have handled the bad boy Pistons trying to, like, talk him down? And they posted a picture of, like, LeBron during warm-up just all jacked up. <laughs> and, like, then a picture of Bill Lambeer just not looking like an athlete. <laughs> so yeah. it's like, yeah, LeBron can definitely handle Bill Lambeer if that's what you're asking. Yeah. Um, I'd really love I mean, to see that era of NBA basketball return because, you know, uh, the NBA is great and I love it and everything, but going back and seeing how much leash that they were given with regard to being able to, you know, you know, we say it in football with flags, we say it in the NBA, just like let them play. Um, and I wish that sports would be more open to doing that with obviously the players knowing well that they ideally should not hurt anybody. Jesse and I decided to do a redraft of all of the process drafts. Uh, so 2013 on, we did the 2013 NBA draft a couple of episodes ago. So, we're going to do the 2014 NBA redraft here. And uh, how, how this goes, essentially, we'll just go down the first round of picks, explain why we picked who we picked, um, especially if there are discrepancies in, you know, you picking somebody higher than me or me picking somebody higher than you. So that's kind of how it'll go. And I guess we might as well just uh, go ahead and start with the first one. And uh, the trend that you'll see at the, the beginning of this, the listeners and, and viewers right now, is that we agree on the first few, and then it gets a little more interesting from there. So with the first overall pick, which was the Cleveland Cavaliers originally having picked Andrew Wiggins, both Jesse and I went with Joel Embiid, who was the third overall pick. Um, Jesse, I, I know for me... I was very much debating whether it should be Joel Embiid or Nikola Jokic here. And you texted me at one point saying, I hope you pick Jokic. I couldn't do it yeah. just because like the statistical numbers favor Embiid 
in so many ways with regards to, to defense and scoring that I just, I get the health history and everything like that, but I could not not pick Embiid to go first. Like I, I think that he is a better player than Jokic. I feel like Jokic might have a little bit of a better chance to have a longer career because he's had less injuries, but he's also, you know, kind of a chubby guy. So you just don't know. But I think overall Embiid's just the better player. And I think the scoring upside and when Embiid's in the zone, he's the better player. Yeah, I agree that Embiid's better. Obviously, we both had him first. I wanted you to say Jokic just to kind of like let us debate it. Yeah. Because I didn't want to be, I either couldn't, I couldn't like stomach the idea of putting Jokic over him or I just couldn't, didn't want to be the bad guy. I don't know. Um, but like there's definitely some like the, the analytics stats you put in there in our uh, review. I don't remember off the top of my head, but there was definitely some that you could point to and say, well, Jokic is the more efficient player. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the better at this, better at that. Um, and certainly Jokic is a much better passer than Embiid is. There's no doubt about oh, that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably a better long range shooter than Embiid. Um, even though the volume's vastly different. I feel like in a seven game series though, if they're both healthy, you take Embiid every time. Yeah, and I, I would too. Um, it's it's just there's certainly a debate there. It's not as clear cut as like last our last redraft where Giannis was no one was going to challenge him for the one <laughs> spot. Like yeah, there was a legitimate. You had to actually think about it and be sure Embiid was the guy. Yeah, and I think like looking at it in a way like not being biased, and I don't think that either of us really used a whole lot of bias to pick them. I, I think he's the better better pick for this, but I think whether it were whether we could actually do like a real redraft and everything like that either of these guys would be very very good players to to build a franchise around yeah definitely so yeah that that'll move us to the number 2 pick originally the Milwaukee Bucks selected Jabari Parker uh, both Jesse and I uh, selected Nikola Jokic, who was actually a second rounder. I feel like I did not actually know that until last week when I started like filling in our spreadsheet on this. I couldn't find him. I figured he'd be like mid first round, but no, second round. That's pretty wild. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think we just kind of covered what we think about Jokic yeah. mm-hmm. talking about Embiid, but yeah, definitely a steal for the Nuggets there, getting him at forty one. Yeah, so uh, with the number three pick, originally the Sixers picked Joel Embiid. Both Jesse and I agree that Zach Levine, um, who was originally selected 13th overall, Mm -hmm. would be the third overall pick. Why did you pick uh, Zach Levine to go as high as he did, above other guys like Andrew Wiggins, Spencer Dinwiddie, Clint Capella, guys like that? Well, I was never a big Wiggins guy to begin with, and when the Timberwolves traded him to traded Levine being to Chicago for Jimmy Butler, I said like they traded the wrong guy. Um, and I think Zach Levine in Chicago has definitely proven that when he's been healthy. You know, he had the one devastating the injury, but since then he's come back, picked up right where he left off. Yeah, I mean, I think he had a couple stretches this year where he averaged like thirty points over like a one or two week span. 
Um, you know, it's a really bad Bulls team, but there's no like he has kept the Bulls in way more games than they should have been in this year. Yeah. And I think he's really emerged as kind of like how Oladipo is when healthy for Indiana, which Indiana is a much deeper team now than they were a year or two ago with Oladipo. But it's the same type of concept where I think Levine's that kind of guy where he's shouldering so much of the load and he's doing it. Like it's yeah. not like he's trying to shoulder the load and collapsing under it. Like he is holding that team up on his shoulders. Yeah. Um, and if they get some, you know, they got campaign now. I, I really like Wendell Carter too. You know, if those pieces come together in Chicago, there's a solid young core to build around. Um, but, you know, Levine in himself, I think, is definitely obviously the third best player here. Yeah. And I think for me, uh, the only thing that I would add to that is that he's he's clearly gotten better every year of his career. You, you know, career high right now in points per game at 25 and a half points. I mean, I feel like he's a guy that's just not very much talked about. Uh, his E field goal percentage is the highest of his career since the 16-17 season, and he's also shooting th- uh, 38% from beyond the arc, which is his best also since the 2016-17 season uh, with the Timberwolves prior to joining the Bulls. So, yeah, I think that's a good pick and honestly would, would love him on the Sixers if they were somehow either able to to drug Mark Eversley and, and uh, get him to trade us uh, Zach Levine for – Al Horford or something like that. You know, maybe he's still working for the Sixers. You never know. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. Um, okay, so we agreed on the first three picks. This is the first one you and I did not pick the same person. So number four overall originally was Aaron Gordon. Uh, Orlando Magic never quite panned out to be what at least I thought he would be. So uh, in this spot, I went with Clint Capella, who was picked in the late 20s, and you picked Julian uh, Julius Randall, uh, who was with the seventh overall pick for me, uh, I think the thing that put Capella over Randall for me and my Randall, I think my Randall pick is a couple picks later. Um, although Capella is hurt, I feel like, uh, his athleticism and his defensive skill set is better than, what Randall offers otherwise. And that's kind of how I did the defensive sense. Uh, the defensive statistics favor Capella. Um, and the only reason that I was a little iffy about this pick was that Capella is similar to a lot of those lob catchers. I feel like he's not necessarily a uh, multi faceted center. So a lot of the points he scores is via the lob, but especially where he is now in Atlanta, once he gets healthy, I feel like he's going to be better than he was uh, prior to when he got hurt. So here you have Julius Randall, who was selected uh, number seven overall. Why did he move up to four for you? Um, For me, it's like, I think Julius Randall's a guy that you can almost call a triple double machine. Mm-hmm. You know, I think he's had multiple, you know, not I think like he has had multiple 30 point nights, you know, he's liable to lead the scoring scoring load. He showed he's a great rebounder when he can, when he wants to be, and he knows how to get his teammates involved. And I think that's a skill set, especially at the four, because he doesn't demand the ball in his hands to get those stats. Um, you know, that to me is just a really valuable player. Mm-hmm. I think he has kind of been lumped in with a lot of those like mid tier fours in the NBA. Mm-hmm. But I think he is certainly one of the better, best players in this draft. Um, I, I don't have Capella there because, you know, Capella is a very solid player. But I think he's been solid as a result of system. 
you know, I think running a pick and roll with James Harden and Chris Paul and Eric Gordon and Russell Westbrook is not that difficult in the NBA. Right. Yeah. You know, so I and that's really all I've seen him do. Um, He's done that in rebound. He hasn't been a necessarily great defender. He's been a good defender, but he hasn't been in that elite tier. Mm -hmm. So I'm interested to see what Capella does now that he's in Atlanta once he gets healthy and how that'll change things up for his career because that is not I mean Trey Young isn't afraid to go into contact but he would much rather sit outside and shoot the ball and that team is very much geared for a pace and space style Mm -hmm. so I want to see how Clint Capella assimilates to that environment or if he was a one-trick pony with Houston right yeah Uh, yeah that'll be interesting to see so moving along to number five uh number five pick was originally Dante Exum uh, for the Utah Jazz. And I think that was a guy that I had wanted maybe at the time for the Sixers. I sure, certainly wasn't thinking about Embiid because they already had Nerlens and we got to see MCW and Nerlens and it was just like, oh, this is nice. Well, maybe at this point we didn't get to see them together. But anyway, uh, you and I both went with Andrew Wiggins at this point. Obviously, he was the guy leading into the draft that if the Sixers landed the number one pick they were likely going to go with Andrew Wiggins and that was a guy that was heavily scouted by the Sixers going into this draft and I just uh yeah unfortunately he has not like developed into the player that we all thought that he would be I'm very interested to see how he ends up faring in Golden State not having to be like the primary scorer once Klay Thompson and Steph Curry come back I think in a complimentary role where he can play more to his skill set will be good for him. But, you know, I have him at number five because I feel like he's better than the guys below him, but I'm certainly disappointed in his career trajectory to this point. Yeah, I totally agree with your assessment there. Like, I I don't want to say I hate Andrew Wiggins because, like, there's nothing wrong with the guy or the player, but he just has no dog in him at all. Like he's like he's like the emptiest numbers. Like he'll he'll give you twenty five eight and eight, but it's like the emptiest twenty five eight and eight. Like I don't know how else to explain it. He just doesn't he doesn't dictate a game. He just is kind of there, and that's like I've just never really been a fan of him because of that. Yeah, no, I agree with you as well. All right, moving on to number six. Originally, the pick was Marcus Smart, a guy who has uh, given the Sixers fits in in recent years. So for me in this spot, I went with Spencer Dinwiddie, who was selected originally 38th overall. Uh, And Jesse, you went with Clint Capella. You already shared a little bit about Capella. Any reason that he went six above uh, other folks for you? Um, I mean, because like I said, I still think he's an effective player. He's effective at what he's been asked to do so far. Um, I just couldn't put him higher than six because I'm not sure if he can actually do more than what he's been asked to do. Mm-hmm. So uh, it'd be unfair to tumble him down the list. I just, I couldn't put him over, um, over a Wiggins or over a Julius Randall for me. Yeah. Um, and for me here, Spencer Dinwiddie, I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that since we watch a lot of Sixers games, uh, you know, we get to see them play the nets a lot and there, there's no, denying that Spencer Dinwiddie has developed as a very good player. Uh, 
I don't think he can be the best player on a championship team, but um, you know, is solid from the field. Not having a great year from three point uh, range this season, I think he's shooting a little bit over thirty percent. But, but overall, a good player to have. I mean, I would certainly love to have him on the Sixers. But yeah, that's why I had him up there. And it's, again, another we talked about um, what's it called? Nikola Jokic, forty one overall. This is another guy, and Spencer Didwe, thirty eighth. There are a few others throughout sprinkled throughout this draft that were originally second round picks that made it into the first round. So. Um, yeah. All right. Moving along to number seven, originally uh, Julius Randall selected by the Lakers. I had Randall at that spot. Exactly. I don't really have a whole lot of explanation for that. I, he's uh, you said like he's a walking you know, triple double, you know, puts up those stats and everything like that. I guess the reason I had him so low was just, I feel like he does a lot of things, but he doesn't do one thing very well and that's why I had him the selection that he did and sure it's good to have a guy like Julius Randle where you can he can rebound he can score uh, and he can do other things but I feel like the guys above him Spencer Dinwiddie um, you know even Capella those are guys that have had like I feel like the guys above him have higher ceilings than he does currently at his this point in his career. You, at this point, had uh, Spencer Didwitty, who was 38th overall. So what are your thoughts on Didwitty and how he's developed uh, from a second-round pick to, to now? Yeah, I mean, I think he's really kind of overachieved. Um, he's really come on strong the last two or three years with the Nets. I think part of the reason that I have him a little lower than you is, one, I was trying not to get that familiarity biases we do see him so often Mm -hmm. but also because of the situation he's in now where it's like now he's pigeonholed as the six man with Kyrie being in Brooklyn um and I feel like that puts a cap on what he can become so I had to go off of what he is right now so what he is right now that's about the spot I put him in I think his best games are against the Sixers um so I think he's a good player when not playing the Sixers but his best games are certainly against the Sixers Mm -hmm. So with that in mind, I couldn't put him too far up the list, but he's yeah. still still top 10 in Still here. top 10. Yeah, lottery pick. All right, moving on to number eight. Uh, you and I both agreed on this one. Originally picked Sacramento, Mr. Nick Stauskas, a process sixer through and through. Uh, you and I both went with TJ Warren. I know for me, just overall a solid player, you know, good scorer, solid defender. Um, originally went 14th, and, and yeah, I feel like uh, – I don't really have any other reason for why he went number eight for me, but uh, I think overall just a solid player and certainly better than a lot of other people that were picked before him in this draft. Yeah, I think he's another good player in a bad situation now, which, you know, I love the Indiana Pacers makeup, but they have a very, very crowded front court, and he's now stuck in that mix, you know, with Sabonis, with Turner, with um, Digitrafted Batadze. Yeah. Like, there's and just Oladipo. a lot of. Yep. Mm-hmm. Who's that? I was saying they have Old Depot too. There are a lot of guys at uh, the same positions. Yeah, well, Old Depot is more of a backcourt player, I think. I mean, Warren's like a three or a four. Mm-hmm. Um, even then, like, I mean, I think they have. Do they have Bogdan Bogdanovich there now too? Or no, he's still in Sacramento. I'm thinking of the other Bogdanovich. Oh, thing. oh, uh, no, he's in Utah. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, there's just so many bodies to juggle in Indiana, and even with Brogdon there now and Aaron Holiday off the bench, like it's a very balanced roster. But that also means less chances for TJ Warren, who before was really coming on strong in Phoenix um, before he got traded. So you know, based on that, like if he was still in Phoenix or moved to a situation where he got to play thirty some minutes a night. I think he would be maybe a little higher up the list right now. Unfortunately, he just hasn't gotten that chance yet. Right. Yeah. All right, moving on to the number nine overall picked originally, the Charlotte Hornets at the time, uh, selected Noah Vonley. Uh, You and I both went with Aaron Gordon, who was originally the fourth pick. I think we I mentioned it a little bit, just not the career trajectory that we thought he was going to have. You know, a solid player, but he can't do like he's not a great shooter. He can dunk, and and that's really about it. And he hasn't improved a whole lot from what he was in uh, his first year. So, yeah, he's Blake Griffin light. I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah. Um, okay. Set not as developed. Yeah. So moving to number ten, uh, the Sixers, uh, their second pick of the draft went with Alfred Payton before trading him to the Magic for the rights to Dario Saric. Uh, in this spot, I went with Marcus Smart. You went with Bogdanovich, and this is very stupid by me, but I got the Bogdanoviches mixed up. This isn't the one that's on the Kings right now. This is the one on the Jazz right now, right? No, I think this is the Kings one. Okay. Um I remember looking it up because okay. I think he was like a bit of a stash. Okay. Yeah. yeah. No, 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 no. Okay. I didn't mess it up. Ha. Huh. Didn't mess it up. Okay. So yeah, I picked Marcus smart here. I know he's more of like a supplementary player, but I feel like he's made a really big impact for the Celtics. Um, again, I, for this one, I don't necessarily think it's like uh, getting to see him bias or anything like that. I just feel like he's, um, uh, he has a little bit of that Detroit bad boys to him. He can hit the three and he can hurt you in a lot of different ways. Is he like a bona fide starting player now? But I feel like he could be a very valuable player on, <clears throat> on a uh, championship team. So um, you went with Bogdanovich here. Who's now on the Kings uh, having a pretty good season, but hasn't has, has been kind of inconsistent here. So why do you have him up uh, number 10? Yeah, I just think three-point shooting is the most valuable commodity in the NBA right now. And he does that about as good as anyone in the league currently. So that's what pushed it up there for me. Yeah. Um, So moving along to number 10, or number 11, originally the Denver Nuggets selected Doug McDermott. For me here, I went with Yusuf Nurkic, and uh, Jesse, you went with Joe Harris. Um, I went with Nurkic here. I know he's hurt now, but... I actually went back and looked at some of his film and, you know, he's, he's one of those players, uh, one of those big men that has a lot of different, uh, skills to his skill set, And I believe that, uh, even though he's hurt, he's still a, uh, big man that has a high ceiling, lots to improve on. And, and when he returns to the, to the Blazers, I think that they're going to be a good, a better team, uh, than the underachieving one that they are in, um, in Portland right now. But I had him up here, um, Joe Harris, 33rd overall, uh, another Brooklyn Net, a guy that we get to see a lot. Why Why is he there for you? Same reason as Bogdanovich, just good three-point shooter. And, you know, his percentages are so good that it, again, justified it for me. 
um, you know, we're kind of getting into a point now where it's guys who are either like you kind of said with Julius Randle, like a jack of all trades or yeah. a guy who does one thing really well. And I think it's just kind of sifting out, you know, which which traits are more desirable. And I think three point shooting is probably the most desired thing in the league right now. Right. Um, all right. Uh, next, the 12th overall pick originally by the Orlando Magic, Dario Saric. I went with Joe Harris here for the same reasons you went for him one pick higher, the three-point shooting. Uh, and you went here with uh, Marcus Smart, who was originally sixth overall. Any comments on Smart or? So, <laughs> so like, I'm surprised I didn't put Marcus Smart higher because I love Marcus Smart. Like, if there's one guy on this list, or I mean, I'd probably take Levine over Smart. But other than that, if I could pull one guy off of this list and put him on the Sixers tomorrow, it's Marcus Smart. Hmm. Um, I just love his energy. I love the, what he brings to the game. You know, he's not the most efficient shooter, but he's a very emotional player. He uh, is very good at messing up the opposition, you know, either by stealing the ball or getting under the team's skin, like, like if Philly fans love TJ McConnell, they would absolutely go nuts for a guy like Marcus Smart. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's just—I mean, he's, I think he's one of the most underrated players in the league in terms of what he means to his team. Um, I think he's a guy that proves that everything isn't in box scores, and that's part of what I like about him so much. Yeah. So number 13 overall is where the Minnesota Timberwolves originally took Zach Levine. Uh, at this spot, I took Bogdanovich. And uh, you uh, selected Jordan Clarkson, who was another second rounder here. I have him a little lower. Uh, you already spoke about Bogdanovich. I think his ceiling is good, and, and three-point shooting is certainly improving but i guess for me i have him a little lower than you because we just haven't seen the consistent aspect of it maybe that's because of the team that he's on and the role that he has but i want to be able to see it more consistently and that's why he was a little further down for me uh so you have clarkson here you want to talk about that yeah i just think jordan clarkson's proven to be a reliable scorer very good six man knows his role and is very good at coming and getting points in bunches. And I think that holds value in itself. I mean, now we're getting down to the point where it's all role players. And I think in terms of guys who fulfill their role, you know, Marcus Smart's great at doing that. Jordan Clarkson's another one who I think just comes in and does his job every night. You know, he'll definitely have an off night shooting the ball. But for the most part, he's a pretty reliable double-digit scoring effort off of the bench. Right. And I think that's a super reliable or super valuable thing in the NBA today. Right. Yeah, I agree with you. So next we'll move on to the number 14 overall pick, originally TJ Warren by the Phoenix Suns. Jesse, you had uh, Yusuf Nurkic here at number 16, while I went with another second-round pick and a former Sixers process soldier, uh, Jeremy Grant, who was a second-rounder. Um, you had him much lower, and I guess we'll talk about that once we get to his spot. But I guess for me, Jeremy Grant is this high on my list because I believe that while he's not necessarily reliable scoring-wise, he's not going to be a guy that's going to score 20 points. He's going to score between 10 and 15 points a game. But I've always been a big fan of his rim protection, and now he's started to add the three-point um 
arsenal to to his game and that's really really starting to show you know a couple years ago he was shooting under 30 percent uh last season with uh, oklahoma city he shot just under 40 percent from three-point range shooting about four per game and then uh this season so far in 64 games with the nuggets shooting 40 percent from beyond and he's really come into his own with the nuggets i feel like he's growing as a player each year adding a new th- uh you know aspect to his game and might he be a little high on this list maybe but i've always been a big fan of jeremy grant and i feel like what he adds to the game he adds three-point shooting he adds defense um, and he can play multiple uh, positions. He might be a little short for the power forward, but um, that's why I had him at um, 14. Yeah, so me with Nurkic here, I mean, you touched on Nurkic already. I think I have him a bit lower than you more because of worry about what his health will be when he comes back. Um, I know he had a bit of a problem getting gas at the end of games before he got hurt. I wonder how that's going to change with him not being able to really work on his leg. Mm-hmm and kind of build up his conditioning while he's been out. So I think he might have a bit of a, you know, a, a definitely a bit of an adjustment period when he does get healthy. With that said, I think he's a throwback, and I think he fits perfectly with uh, Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum and what they like to do. You know, with all the finesse that those two have in their games, he's a guy that can just stand down there under the hoop, get rebounds, put them back, you know, box out, get the ball to, and he is a good passer of the ball too, and get the ball out to, Lillard and McCollum on breaks and things like that. Um, so I, I think he's another guy, like, I think, I forget what else we said about it, um, but a guy who's just in the perfect situation in the right role. Mm-hmm. And that's what I like about Nurkic. I'm just worried about him being able to come back and be the same guy he was before he got hurt. Yeah. Makes sense. So moving along to number 15, the Atlanta Hawks originally selected Adrian Payne. I'm not sure he's – is he in the NBA now? I don't think he's in the NBA or ever was in the NBA. Yeah. So, not that I know of. Uh, in this slot, I went with Gary Harris, um, originally selected 19th overall, and you went with Alfred Payton. I, I don't really have a very long explanation for this. I just think Gary Harris is a solid, you know, backup point guard you know he was drafted 19th overall the only reason that he's 15th is because we're getting into that group as we did with the last draft where a lot of these guys kind of lump together uh, so for me for Gary Harris there's nothing great that stands out about him he's a solid backup point guard um, and uh, yeah so why Alfred Payton at this spot I have a much lower yeah I'm actually going to suggest that after we talk about these two that we just kind of jump to where you have where we have like i have jeremy grant you have dwight powell yeah because mm-hmm. we really just have all the same names in here and we're going to get really repetitive <laughs> um and they're just all in different spots oh yeah yeah, yeah. i think we could just go by the guys say where we have them and explain what we do or don't like yeah um but yeah i have alfred payton sitting here um i really valued his defense when evaluating this and like yeah it was tough to put him over dario charge for me but um Alfred Payton, I think, has proven himself, even though he's not a great shooter or scorer of the basketball, he's very good at running an offense, very good at finding his teammates, and very, very reliable on the defensive end of the floor. He's essentially the perfect backup point guard. Mm -hmm. And I think he's the kind of guy that we're going to be sitting here like six, seven years from now. They're like, oh, Alfred Payton's still playing, like that kind of player. Right. Um. I like kind of like a Sean Livingston is for Golden State, even though Livingston had a much higher ceiling before he got injured as a, as a young player. Um, 
he still lasted forever in the league because of his ability, you know, what he could do for a team, for for team basketball is kind of what I'm talking about here. And I think, you know, as Alfred Payton gets older, and I, I don't know of any of his personality. Right. Um, so I'm, I'm not going to sit here and try to say he isn't already a good team player because I don't know that. Like, I, I just don't follow the teams he's been playing for. Um, but at some point, if he's not already, you know, he will become the kind of guy that I think just swallows his pride, does his job, and makes the team better, kind of like you saw, you know, kind of like a Jason Kidd did for the Mavs when they won the title. Yeah. Like a guy that just accepts his role, does it perfectly, and then doesn't worry about his own numbers. Um, I think that's Alfred Payton, and I think he's just got – I think he's got a skill set built to last. Yeah, so I had Alfred Payton uh, 23rd, so well below where you had him in 15th. And while I do agree with a lot of what you said, I guess for me it's just like he, he, he doesn't seem very much like a player of consequence. We haven't seen him in high-pressure situations. Um, it's taken him a little while to, to get – and find who he is as an NBA player. And certainly a lot of players, you know, get to take a little time to do that. But, uh, you know, I agree with the fact that he's a good distributor as a good backup point guard and everything, but we've mentioned it a couple times before we're in a world where the NBA is getting faster and we're going to a league where a lot of people need to be able to shoot the three point shot. And, you know, we have this criticism of Ben Simmons, three-point shot and Alfred Payton is just one of those guys never been good at shooting um, three-point shots you know shooting 20% this season from three-point shot from three-point land and also he's not a guy that's going to get too much at the line either and I you know this is a backup point guard we're talking about so how much this is this matter in the grand scheme of things I don't know but you know he's a career 62 and a half percent uh, shooter from the line so I feel like while he does do the basic point guard stuff well I think he's on the New York Knicks for a reason he's been on the teams he's been on for a reason because I don't think that on like a competitive team that he'd be able to keep up the um, you know what he's been doing now yeah, that's fair all right um, so the the next one we had was number 16 originally Yusuf Nurkic by the Bulls. I had Jordan Clarkson here. I agreed with everything you said about him before. Does his job, scores everything. And you had Dario here, originally 12th overall. Um, Why don't you talk about Dario, and then I guess uh, I'll jump to where I took him a couple picks later. Yeah, I think he's a guy where if he was still in Philly, I would have him higher, part because of familiarity, but also I think his production's kind of dipped since going to Phoenix, and I think he may even move since then. No, he's still um, in Phoenix, yeah. Okay. Um, unless I saw it before the hiatus, like I think he was getting more chances with Phoenix too. Um, I think he's just, he hasn't gotten, you know, he hasn't been put in the same situation he was here, where here I think he had more chances on the ball, mm-hmm. which really helped him settle in and really helped him use his skill set. You know, I think there he's just being a basic stretch for being asked to shoot the ball, get under the rim and rebound. And for whatever reason, it's not clicking for him, at least not yet. Um, so I think if he was still a sixer, his numbers would be up, and I would have him further up this list. But um, I still think he's a solid NBA four. Yeah. I just think he needs, you know, he, he hasn't done enough this season for me to justify pushing him up. Yeah. Uh, I had him two picks after you. 
agree with everything you said. I think he's a very systematic player. I think if he's in the right system, he's going to succeed. If he's given the right chances, he's going to succeed. But he, uh, from what we got to know about him when he was in Philadelphia, he was very affected by getting traded to Minnesota. And he seems to be doing a little better headspace-wise in Phoenix because he's there with Monty Williams and everything. Uh, but he seems like a guy very built on confidence. So if he doesn't play well for a little while, that stretch normally goes on for a really long time. Um, and he doesn't necessarily have the pieces around him to where he can be even like the second or third option on an offense. So, um yeah, I had him uh, 18th. So 17th uh, pick, we had uh, Ro- I had Rodney Hood. You had Gary Harris. I'm not sure how much we need to add here. Just kind of backup point guards that do backup point guard things well. Yeah, I mean, Rodney Hood can get off the ball a little bit too. Same with Gary Harris. Um, I think Gary Harris actually starts for the Nuggets, if I'm not mistaken. I could be yeah, wrong. Yeah, I think so. Or Will Barton may have cracked the starting lineup since then. I know Will Barton gets a lot more of the on-ball opportunities than Gary Harris. Yeah. Um, and Rodney Hood's kind of jumped around the league. I think he may have been hurt last I heard, and that's been a problem for him like his whole career. Maybe he's in Utah now? Utah or no, Cleveland? I thought he was in Portland last I heard. <laughs> I know he got sent to Portland last year at the deadline. Uh, Yeah, I'm not sure. Or maybe I'm... Um mistaking him for somebody else um but i mean he was really good down yeah the he's stretch portland you're right yeah so he really fit in well with portland um kind of meshes in with that gunslinger mentality of lillard and mccollum mm-hmm. and you know he does have the skills like you said to move the ball around he's not just a pick and pop shooter you know uh, he fits that team really well it's just his health has been a constant issue and i think he's like even I don't know. He just doesn't doesn't really move the needle for me personally. When he's playing good, he's a really impressive player. I just think he's been really inconsistent. Yeah. Which uh, now he has more of a chance to be consistent in Portland, I think. Right. The uh, 18th overall, originally Tyler Ennis. We've already talked about the two picks that we had here. So this is where I had Dario Saric. This is where you had Rodney Hood. Um I guess the next pick that uh, we'll have where we haven't talked about is number 19, originally Gary Harris by the Chicago Bulls. Uh, This is where I had Jabari Parker, who was originally second overall. This is where you had Kyle Anderson. Jabari Parker, obviously not, um, never lived up to his hype as the number two overall pick, I think. You know, leading into the draft, this was somebody like Wiggins that I had hoped uh, the Sixers would be able to land him because he was a very, very good college player, and that didn't really spill over to the NBA. But I think uh, in his last couple of stops, I know in Atlanta specifically, having gotten to watch him firsthand, uh, he's starting to kind of revitalize his career a little bit um, and is really, really um, – embracing the role as a veteran leader and doing what he can to help young players to improve their games in ways that maybe he didn't uh, have back earlier in his career. So here you have uh, Kyle Anderson, originally 32nd overall. Yeah, first I just want to say when I was doing my redraft, I had Jabari Parker off to the side. I was like, ah, not yet, not yet. (laughs) And I just totally forgot to put him in. he, He would have been right around the area where you have him. Yeah. I, I just had a total like mental lapse there. 
So uh, even then, like his injuries are what would really put him off for me. Like talk about Joel Embiid's injury problems. Jabari Parker's are worse. Yeah. And he's not as good of a player. So it's, for me, like he's still, he would have been probably top 20 for me, but not nowhere near his original draft position. Right. Um, I, I put Kyle Anderson here just because, you know, he's the guy that's like, he's brimming with potential. And it's almost to the point where it's he might be missing the window. Right, yeah. But he, he does just feel like a player who's like one step away from putting it all together and being a great player. Um, you know, he gives you a lot of like five, five, five lines. Like just just a really weird player, you know, but he's oddly effective at times. You know, he does create mismatches on the floor because I think he usually plays a guard position, but he's like six eight or six nine or something. So, I don't know, he's an interesting player. He's nothing great right now. It's just it feels like he can be a great player. He yeah. just hasn't done it yet. Yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you with Kyle Anderson. Uh, I had him at the next pick, um, 20th overall, who was originally uh, the Toronto pick. I don't think that guy ever played in the NBA, Bruno Caboclo. I, I probably butchered his last name, so hopefully he's not listening, but – had Kyle Anderson here. I actually drafted him on my NBA 2K My League team, uh, and he was originally a starter, uh, but through a couple of different trades that I've had, um, he, he's now like the third string small forward. He's good at driving to the hoop, but uh, doesn't really isn't really reliable mid range or from three point range. Or maybe that's just me uh, releasing square at the wrong time for NBA 2K. It could um, be all your fault. Yeah, so here you had uh, Dwight Powell, who was originally 45th, and I had Dwight Powell one pick later um, at 21. Yeah, so with Powell, it's like the way I said Anderson has all of the ceiling you could want. I think Dwight Powell has hit his ceiling, but his ceiling is a very solid rotational player. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't think he's ever going to get better or really worse until he's like older and his body can't hold up. But as far as what he's able to do on the floor, he's proven to be a consistent, effective player. You know, he's not anything to really write home about, but he's a guy that a lot of teams could find minutes for. And I think that's about it with him. Yeah. So 21st, we already talked. Uh, I had Dwight Powell here. Um, this is this was originally Oklahoma City selected Mitch McGarry, who is no longer in the NBA. Not sure if he ever played an NBA minute, maybe one or two. Uh, But you never got to talk about why Jeremy Grant was so low. Uh, Scrolling back up through my list here, I had Jeremy Grant um, 14th. So you have him seven picks later. Why so much lower for him? Yeah, maybe I just haven't watched him enough. Um, I I think his athleticism is off the charts. I think his actual like basketball ability is still lacking. You know, you mentioned he's developed a lot as a shooter and everything else, but I just haven't quite seen it myself with my own eyes yet. Um, you know, I think he's definitely become, you know, a rotational rotation worthy player in the NBA. I just, he, I don't know. He doesn't excite me as much as other people, I guess. Like I, I, it's hard to explain. He's, you know, a great athlete. He's fun to watch, but it's like Rashawn Holmes is fun to watch, but his yeah. his efficiency numbers are not good. Right. And it's like kind of the same feeling with Jeremy Grant. Like, you know, a highlight and, you know, a mid-range bucket are both two points. Right. You yeah. know, it's like, and that's 
maybe that's a bit of an archaic way of looking at basketball, but yeah, I try not to buy into the athletic players too much if they're not putting it all together. Like Jeremy Grant has the athleticism of some of the best players in the NBA, but he's not one of the best players in the NBA. You know what I mean? I think he plays his role well, and I think he's on a team in the Nuggets that um, emphasizes his role well, and I think that three-point shooting improvement has certainly helped his stock. But, yeah, I don't know what his ceiling is. I don't know if his ceiling is what he is now or um, you know, to be a better player than he was before. Because, I mean, he's still only um, 26 years old, so still a long, a long way to go, which is crazy because it's, we're talking about the 2014 NBA draft. So, yeah. Um, all right, moving on to the 22nd pick. I don't really have a whole lot to say about this. Originally, Memphis Grizzlies picked Jordan Adams here. You and I both had Tyler Johnson, who was a backup point guard or starting point guard for the Heat for a while. Um, he was an undrafted free agent. I mean, I personally don't have like any explanation for why he's here. It's just kind of where we are in the draft and, you know, guys that play their role well and aren't great, but they're not terrible. They're more maybe bad than they are good, but you know what I mean? Yeah. I think we can kind of breeze through these last ones because if we really try to break down these guys, we're going to just sound like, yeah, we're already at an hour and 17 minutes. So why don't we just keep rolling through here? Uh, so number 23 overall, and you can stop me, Jesse, if there's anybody that you do want to talk about, but number 23 overall is originally where the Utah jazz took Rodney hood. This is where I had Alfred Payton, uh, Jesse, this is where you had Shabazz Napier, who went uh, 24th overall. Now, I am a Shabazz Napier stan. <laughs> I do that known. Um, I don't know why. I just, whenever he gets on the floor, I like watching him play. His and I've name alone. His name alone. He does, he does have a great name. But even then, just whenever he gets on the floor, I feel like he tends to at least try to make things happen. He tries to be a catalyst. Um, you know, much in the way that endears a TJ McConnell type player. I think he's a better, better player than TJ McConnell. Yeah. Um, could use some help on defense. Part of that's his size. But as far as his like tenacity on offense, I really do enjoy watching Shabazz Napier play. You know, I'm surprised I didn't let that get the better of me and shove him into that conversation with the group we just kind of went through. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, he's a guy that I just want to point him out. I'm a big fan of his. All right. Uh, so 24th overall is where Napier was originally taken by Charlotte. Uh, that's where I had him going. I picked him 24th. Uh, this is where you had Noah Vonley, who uh, was originally selected ninth overall by the by also Charlotte. So that's uh, number 24. Moving to 25th, that's originally where Clint Capella was selected. Uh, you and I both had Clint Capella in the top 10. This is where I had Noah Vonley, and you had current sixer Glenn Robinson III, who was a 40, the 40th pick um, in this draft, a se- another second rounder moving into the first round for us. Um, all right, moving right along to the 26th overall pick originally by Miami, PJ Hairston. You better, you better not say this guy's real last name. PJ Hairston? No, the guy you picked. Oh. Uh, I selected Doug McDermott. You're supposed to say Dougie McBuckets. Dougie McBuckets, my bad. I guess you weren't a big Creighton fan. Yeah, I was a Kyle Corver Creighton fan, maybe not a Dougie McDermott. 
or Dougie McBuckets, uh, who was originally the 11th pick. And and here, number 26, you selected Langston Galloway, who is uh, who actually went out as an undrafted free agent. He's a guy that uh, I think a lot of Sixers fans wanted on their team, uh, whether it was in free agency or via trade, another guy that might have been able to help them off the bench. But needless, he's not there. Um, okay, 27th. Uh, this was originally the Phoenix Suns picking Bogdanovich. Uh, this is where I had Langston Galloway and where you had Dougie McBuckets. Yeah. Um, 28th overall, originally C.J. Wilcox, the pick by the Los Angeles Clippers. This is where I had Glenn Robinson the third. Uh, this is where you had Dante Exum all the way down from number five. For me, Glenn Robinson was as low as he was a little bit below you because yeah, his, his success is, is based on the team that he's on. If his, if, if uh, Curry and Clay Thompson were not hurt, then he probably would not have been having the season that he did. So I still don't think that he's a very good player. He's a good maybe bench guy on a on a good team. So why Exum this low for you? I don't. I wouldn't get to hear that earlier. He just like doesn't get on the floor anymore. He's always injured. Um, I I really liked his upside coming out, but yeah, he just if you're not on the floor, you can't really get a grade. You know. Mm-hmm. All right, number twenty nine. Originally, Oklahoma City selected Josh Huestis. Uh, <laughs> this is where I had Dante Exum and. Jesse, this is where you had Mr. Nick Stauskas, who I guess if you put Jabari Parker in before him, maybe Nick Stauskas doesn't make your list, but Stauskas eighth overall. Uh, but it's nice to see him on this list anyway. Sauce. I mean, even though he's not in the NBA anymore, I still think he showed NBA skills. Mm-hmm. He definitely had potential as a pick and like a catch and shoot three point shooter. Um, <laughs> Him you and Furkan Korkmaz have very similar defensive skills. Yeah, and with Stauskas, I would say it's more a result of like the pond getting too. Or, uh, I'm trying to think the right way. It's just like a an overpopulation of people with his skill set in the league. Yeah, mm-hmm. like you can find a Nick Stauskas level player in the G League or free agency right now. Mm-hmm. Um, this draft just gets skinny at the end. I mean, I think your 30th pick was a G League All Star last year, so. <laughs> Yeah. Well, it was uh, was tough. Yeah. So that'll lead us to the final pick of the 2014 NBA garbage into gold redraft. Originally the Spurs selected Kyle Anderson here. I had Jordan McRae, you know, he has a ring. He was an undrafted free agent and uh, you know, he has a ring. That's really the only reason that he's there. And Jesse, you went back to back with process Sixers here as your final pick was Mr. Undrafted free agent himself, Jakar Sampson. Hey, he's still on an NBA roster. Yeah. That's, that's basically true. why he's here. <laughs> I think I had Jordan McRae 31st, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, debates going on in my own head as to whether or not I wanted McRae or Jakar Sampson on my team. No, on the Pacers, right? Pacers. I think. You're going to wake up in a cold sweat tonight. Yeah. Oh, did I pick the right one? With memories of Jakar Sampson past. So, um, anyway, that will conclude our 2015 
or 2014 NBA redraft. We appreciate everybody sticking around for this, whether you are on Twitter or you're listening to us on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks again for tuning in. Uh, on the next episode, whether it's next week or a week after that, uh, depending on scheduling, uh, we will do our redraft of the 2015 NBA draft, which was the memorable draft where Jaleel Okafor showed the cameras his Sixers jersey and then, you know, more or less threw it in the trash. And from then on, we had a wonderful relationship with Ja. Yikes. So join us next time. Uh, on Garbage Into Gold as we dive into the Jaleel Okafor draft. Take care, everybody, and we will talk to you on the next episode. Garbage in the gold.